So Rowan, I have a confession for you. Ooh. All right. Yeah. Hold on. Let me get let me let me channel my inner uh um those bo- that booth with the the curtains. Um What? Confessional. The word is confessional. I got there. <laughs> I was I was like fortune teller. <laughs> Ooh, yes, let's do that one instead. It's more of just a, I, I'm going to share a, a story of my own shame with you. Oh, oh, go for go for it. So I, after recording this, have to go to a uh, a holiday party with my friends where we're doing a Christmas cookie exchange. You should feel so embarrassed. How dare you have yeah, holiday parties? Yeah, and we haven't even gotten to the embarrassing part. So. Listen, I'm a good baker. I'm good at baking. Okay. I do it all the time. You know this. This is a thing that I do. So you think a holiday cookie party right up my alley. A thing I'm so ready for. Oh, yeah. I think I know what you're about to say. I tried baking two different kinds of cookies yesterday. Uh Uh-huh. And both completely failed. (gasps) Oh. Fully and 100%. These are cookies I've made a million times before. One was a shortbread recipe. Okay. The other one was a meringue. Ooh. Right. Both have three ingredients. <laughs> I, I, I And I don't know what went wrong. And then Jamie tried to make cookies she's made hundreds of times before. They also completely failed. So it was a cursed cookie day. Sounds like it was the oven's fault. Yes, I like that. Let's blame it on the oven because it was a cursed day. Are you going to go to the store, buy cookies, and then crumble the edges a little bit and like maybe over bake a couple so they're inconsistent? Like that would be really smart. I did the lawful good thing of (laughs) I texted all my friends and said, I'm sorry, I tried very hard. Here's evidence of my failed cookies, and I'll be bringing a veggie platter. You had so many holiday cookie issues. You said, you know what? No more vegetables. It came out of when I said that they failed. Casey responded with, well, maybe you could bring some veggies to offset the cookies. You're not supposed to offset. the. There are no vegetables between now and the new year. (laughs) (laughs) Um. I wish that was true, but no, I, I have a veggie platter on the way. I uh, My day is so packed back-to-back with stuff because I'm also watching my neighbor's cats, so uh, I have to have someone deliver a veggie platter to me. Listen, I'm being real shady for someone that has in the past and will in the future crowd around the veggie platter with you and just wreck the carrots so no one else can have them. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I do love a good veggie platter, so... That's my um that's my confession to you. That's that's the, the I'm so tired and I spent all day yesterday failing at baking. I haven't done really any holiday baking, but um my friend Lexi, who is an amazing cook and amazing baker, she's on uh Pixel Circus, Damsel's Dice and Everything Nice with me as Rapunzel. She baked these amazing gluten-free, dairy-free butter cookies that have chocolate on top. And Mm. she gave some to me to pass along because I was going to be going to see some other friends of ours. And I was like, yeah, that's great. Um, One of the cookies in here is mine, and that is the toll for delivering the cookies. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Okay, good. I I thought that that was going to go really differently. I appreciate you having my back on that. No, I have your back completely. I think if... 
if the majority of cookies make it to where they need to go, you have done your assigned duty. This is why we are the best of friends. Hi, I'm <laughs> Rowan Hall. And I'm Tracy Harrison. And this is Willing and Fable, the podcast where we have a pact to bring you most of the cookies we promise to deliver, <laughs> as well as original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Each week on this podcast, we research a topic from history or mythology, and then we write an original story to go along with that topic. So if you'd like to support the weekly research papers that we do for this podcast, a quick and free thing you can do is tell a friend about our show. Mm, or you can support Willing and Fable by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash willingandfable. And you know who recently did that? Katrina M. Thank you, Katrina M. We are so happy to have you as part of our Willing and Fable family, which is legally distinct from a cult. Because of taxes. <laughs> <laughs> But it is so nice having the opportunity to get to know everyone. We so appreciate your support. We don't get to be a podcast without people like Katrina. Um, hey, if if you're not feeling patronage, you know, you could also check out our merch. It's at willingandfable.com. We have all these amazing designs created by Jamie Harrison. Or you can donate to or volunteer at your local animal shelter and boop the snoot of a friend in need. Ooh, that might be my favorite. Mm-hmm. And the holidays are just around the corner. Have you gotten all of your presents for your big old nerd friends? Would they like a we get at your goth dice? Probably. You heard that correctly because our longtime sponsor, Greenleaf Geek, just named the most beautiful set from her curated collection of dice after one of our favorite podcast quotes. I was so excited when I saw these because they're basically... They're to me, they're the combination of us in a dice. <laughs> they're they're red and gold and green and iridescent, but they have dark swirls in them. Oh my god, I love them so much. They're especially perfect because they're like not on the nose only black. They're like, I get it, you're goth, you like spooky things. Have you considered recently spooky shimmer? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's actually officially our brand is Spooky Shimmer. It's I love it. It's perfect. It's shiny and it's spooky, and that's everything I love. That's it. It's inspired by Leah also, which is also very much our brand. We're very inspired by Leah. So if you are too, you should check out the amazing dice sword pendant she has. She has dice trays, cases, health trackers for your characters, branded merch, custom-made resin dice. Mm-hmm. So go visit Greenleaf Geek on Twitter and Instagram, and don't forget to use our coupon code when you shop at greenleafgeek.com. That coupon code is FABLE, F-A-B-L-E, for 10% off your order. Some restrictions apply. All right. This is my heavy hitter episode that has been in the works for too darn long. We haven't podcasted together in too darn long because I got very sick and completely lost my voice. <laughs> you, you did. You didn't even, it wasn't, oh, that raspy sort of, oh. I'm... She sent me an audio message <laughs> and maybe four syllables came out in a 30 second message. I don't know why. I was so concerned that like you wouldn't believe me. 
which is very <laughs> funny because like why not you're the person who would um and if right if i can't record it's i i would record with like the sexy whiskey rasp you know if i could have it but i i did not i was you went so far past whiskey rasp you went i don't even know what to call it just squeaks it it was awful and uh i i uh that uh flu just hung around it was like hey uh covid is so intense i thought i'd up my game so i have yeah. the most intense flu i've had in a minute but today i am bringing you all the story the myths the legends the mysteries of lake baikal i'm so excited for this the only thing i know about this is from a tiktok i saw that you sent me a long time ago. Yes. When I saw that TikTok, I – you know what? No, okay. So I, I totally owe a debt to Geodesaurus on TikTok because that is the video that Tracy is talking about that I saw. And this person is an artist and teacher that is focused specifically on Great Lakes conservation. Um, but it was their video on Lake Baikal. They basically just nerd out about lakes from all around the world, which I didn't know was a an internet niche I needed to be involved in. <laughs> yep. That's how I that's me and YouTube, the amount of random facts I know because I just fall down into strange niche interests. I love it. I love a fun fact. So I kind of pinned the topic and then I was supposed to be doing something else and I uh texted Tracy and I was like, hi, hello, I've changed my mind. This lake is too rich with life. I was very excited. I'm excited for the very first uh, header you put in for your <laughs> the way you organized your research. <laughs> read it, Can I read, read it. it? <laughs> Lakeside the Baikal guy. <laughs> Tracy and I have a long running joke where we turn Bill Nye the Science Guy into different things yeah bill why the science fi is still the best oh we need to rename our wi-fi network and that is in the running also for any theater nerds um 10 minute call is what i want to name the wi-fi network and make the password <laughs> thank you 10 well now you can't do that because you just shared it with everyone listen here's the thing if someone comes across my internet and sees 10 minute call and is like oh my god that chick from Willing and Fable. This is her <laughs> internet network. And they log in. You know what? They deserve it. Okay. Fair. <laughs> All right. Tell me about Lake Baikal. Okay. First, we're going to talk history, geography, and all the really cool facts that originally made me geek out about this topic. Smithsonian Magazine has my favorite quote about our spooky lake. Quote, no lake is more lake than Lake Baikal. <laughs> Set deep within the Russian subcontinent, Baikal is the deepest, oldest, and most voluminous of all lakes. A superstar of superlatives in hydrology, geology, ecology, and history. I wonder if it's um, afraid of heights being so high up on that pedestal. <laughs> no, it, it will get down to the darkest depths. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> Lake Baikal is in southern Siberia. It's near the Mongolian border, and it is also not far from China. And by not far, I mean 
when you're looking at a map, you can imagine a flight from one location to another being very quick. But if you were walking through the snow of Siberia mm -hmm. with the ice and the wind, it would feel like an eternity. So, Tracy, I have a map for you. It's nothing fancy, but I just wanted to illustrate how close we are to the borders of a lot of different countries as they stand today and consequently a lot of different cultural groups. Yeah, you got the Lake Baikal. Uh, which is in Russia, but very close to the border of Mongolia, which borders China. And Mongolia and Kazakhstan also have borders that kind of gently kiss right right at the little edge there. You know, I never considered that, but you're not wrong. <laughs> yeah, they, they do. I was um, really far north in China. I was actually... Um, Close to, I mean, relatively close to Lake Baikal. I didn't even realize it. I was right up near the border of Mongolia and China, a little bit further north. So not with the not the southern border of Mongolia, but more the western border. Mm -hmm. um, to the point where everyone kept speaking Russian to me instead of English or Chinese. Oh, that's cool though. Yeah, yeah, it was really cool. I loved it. I had some of my favorite meals there. I got to see a gorgeous Chinese and Russian culturally merged church. It was very. Very lovely. I think um, areas along borders really allow you to compare and contrast the histories of different areas so well because, um, like, for example, I spent a lot of time on the border of Switzerland and France. And mm -hmm. in some places, you can almost see the border because those country lines have been defined for a very long time. And in other places... It's as if the border doesn't exist at all because you can't tell people to behave differently based on a drawing on a map. Right. So Lake Baikal is the oldest lake in the world, created by a rift valley between 25 and 30 million years ago. Now, most of Earth's lakes are only about 18,000 years old, with 20 being considered, quote, ancient lakes. And to qualify as ancient, a lake must be one million years or older. So Lake Baikal is the most ancient of ancients. It is also the Earth's largest lake. Now, Ethan Siegel, writing for Forbes, says, quote, It's barely half the surface area of Lake Michigan, coming in at number seven among the world's lakes at a little over 12,000 square miles. But... You could reframe that quote by saying that it is roughly the size of Belgium, which is oh. 11,849 square miles, and that makes Baikal sound awfully vast. Uh, yes, it does. It's bigger than Belgium. Yeah, and if you're sitting there going, actually, Belgium's not that big, I'm going to remind you, we're talking about a lake, my friend. Also, a ton of people live in Belgium. It's a whole country, so. This lake is so vast that it is estimated that it would take 330 years for a single water molecule to travel through the entire lake, inlet to outlet. What does that even mean? <laughs> Are you asking me hoping for an answer? Because I don't have one. I'm, I love that fact <laughs> so much, and I know that I don't even fully understand it. I have this, like, as I'm getting older, realizing I have a, a fascination with geology and earth sciences that I 
didn't realize I did, but the more I'm hearing facts about stuff like this, the more excited I get. Oh, I went off on this episode. I can't even pretend like I'm not a nerd. Okay, so (laughs) on the surface of our lake, there are 27 islands. Perhaps the most famous of them is Olkan, which is 45 miles in length. And I've heard that pronounced numerous different ways, so my friends, it's spelled O-L-K-H-O-N if you see it in writing. Um, because more people are writing about this lake than are are videoing about it, in my estimation. Mm, yep, I've experienced that too. Not about this specifically, just many things. <laughs> many <cover>. things. <laughs> <laughs> so these size facts are all well and good. But here's the thing. The lake is growing just under an inch per year. So scientists... That's a lot. It's huge. It's so much. Thank you. So scientists hypothesize that it will be an ocean in about 20 million more years. Whoa. Whoa. I know. And I feel like people are like, Rowan, Tracy, we get it. The lake is big, but why do you care? Why don't you care? Bigness is terrifying. The, The facts about the size... I find particularly chilling. There's, it's like, uh. I'm interested in in learning more about this, given how much we find the ocean discomforting, and something about this lake being self-contained. I don't know if that makes it better or worse. I learned in a really visceral way the other day. I was playing Blades in the Dark, which is a TTRPG, and in Blades in the Dark, there are ink black oceans where giant leviathans live. And uh-huh. everyone else I was playing with were like, oh, that's so cool. And I was like, nope, nope, super not. That is distinctly uncool, my friends. Like, <laughs> great to hear about far away. My character's not going there. No. Absolutely not. Anyway, so our lake, smaller than Lake Michigan on the surface area front, not really actually sounding that big. So how is it the largest lake? Well, by call is 5,387 feet deep. Isn't that basically a mile? Wow, actually, Tracy, yes, you would be correct. It is over a mile. A mile is 5,280 feet. Okay, I knew it was a five, a something, and an 80. <laughs> I don't know why. I thought it was 5,380, but it's 5,280. So... This has 107 feet on a mile. For perspective, Lake Superior is 1,332 feet deep, and Loch Ness is only 745 feet deep. There's supposed to be a giant dinosaur-like monster in that Scottish lake, and it's not even at quadruple digits yet. Ooh, I wonder what kind of monsters live in Lake Baikal. Thank you for wondering. I look forward to telling you in the distant future. I have a lot to talk about. (laughs) And speaking of mile, so (laughs) imagine our time running the mile in high school. No. Suffering through that and just (laughs) add pressure of being underwater. No. Oh, no thank you. So Baikal is filled with 5,666 cubic miles of water, which is more than all the North American Great Lakes combined, totaling to 20% of the world's available unfrozen fresh water. 20%? Yes. Of the world's 
fresh water. Yes. And this lake does freeze. So anyone who is confused, unfrozen fresh water means basically water that isn't in a glacier. Mm -hmm. If every person in the world used 132 gallons of Baikal lake water per day, the contents would last 40 years. Oh my God, it's so much water. So this thing is like unfathomably deep. Thank you. It is so deep, your brain shorts out midway down. Yeah. I mean, because... Okay, yeah, I'm just trying to process it because it is almost five times deeper than Lake Superior, which is an absolutely insanely large lake. Yes. Okay. Oh, my God. The water in Lake Baikal is so clear that in the winter, you can see about 98 feet deep into its depths. (gasps) Which is so big, no. (laughs) I want to see a picture of that. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Tracy, for asking. Boy, am I about to have some pictures for you. (laughs) I'm so excited. (laughs) This next section is not named as well. It's called You're As Cold As Ice. That's still a good name. (laughs) The ice on Lake Baikal freezes at points to about five feet thick. Tracy, that is an entire U worth of ice deep. <laughs> that's true. I'm very small, but <laughs> that's a lot of ice. <laughs> Folks run a marathon on the lake. They drive cars on the lake. What? Okay, for my Midwestern friends, I know that driving cars on a lake doesn't actually sound that exciting, but please remember that this lake is the size of Belgium. This is not your neighborhood fishing hole. Imagine how much stronger the ice needs to be to make driving across Belgium lake size vastness safe. I guess I'm really showing my non-Midwesternness because the idea of driving across a lake is fuck wild to me. Okay, so it's winter. Our editor, Tyler, who's on our team, he's from the Midwest and occasionally... He'll just break out these insane facts about things that they do in the frozen middle north of our country. And he, when I was telling him about this, he acts like driving across a lake is totally normal, which is why I had to add the second bit. (laughs) (laughs) It's not normal to me. I think that's insane. I'm sure we'll get messages from our Canadian friends telling us they do this kind of thing all the time. And that's super cool for them. But I have, I'm scared to walk across a frozen lake. Did you ever ice skate on our pond when we were growing up? Were you... We would, like, shuffle around on it, but (laughs) I never brought skates or anything. Yeah, no, the... And with global warming, it just seems increasingly less likely to me that anything should ever freeze. Mm Mm-hmm. So, Tracy, you love photography. You've probably seen a photo of Lake Baikal without even realizing it. The ice on this lake is famous for the deep cracks that run through it in a spider webbing pattern that, because of the depth of the ice, defies logic. So they're created by pressure and temperature changes and end up looking like art because you can see the top, but you can also see deep. So it creates kind of these walls of cracks that go down beneath you. And the Atlantic has an amazing collection of photographs from Lake Baikal. And the images I'm going to show you right now that we're going to also post on the podcast Instagram are pulled from that article. So listeners, if you want to see them, 
Obviously, you can go to our Instagram, but also check our show notes because you can read the article that goes with it. So, Tracy, this is a photograph of a van driving across Lake Baikal. This is insane. It's the van looks like a little toy. Yes. It's like a little toy car. And the cracks are huge. I mean, the cracks are. The cracks are, they must be the size, the width of a tire or larger. Some of them are much larger. And it's just driving. There's no roads. There's no, obviously there's no roads. It's a lake. But it's just this little car on this huge, vast, crack-filled, ice-covered lake. So the next picture is one of my favorite outdoor photos of all time now. Is that someone camping in a tent on top of the lake? Yes, and it is dark. Vanta black dark. Oh, yes, yes. Sorry. It's the middle of the night. The only light is coming from inside the tent. And the light inside this tent, and when we say tent, we don't mean fancy, big, extravagant tent. We mean tiny little A-frame plasticky mm-hmm. tent. And the light from inside the tent is going Deep into the water as well as out into the air. Oh, this is a gorgeous photograph. I would not be able to sleep. No. Because you can see deep into the water and you gotta know that with that light shining through, you are seconds away at all times from one big blinky eye swimming by underneath you. I do not have a fear of heights, but I am learning. I think I might have a fear of, like, heights over giant bodies of water. Yes, think about that. When you're in that tent and everything around you is black because there is no light pollution and everything is cold and void and vast and the universe is bearing down on you and also consequently bearing up upon you, the only thing that is deep within that lake in that moment is giant and has fins that do not make sense and big, big, sharp teeth. (laughs) <laughs> I could listen to you whack poetic about the <laughs> this fear forever. Did you say whack poetic? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I meant to say wax, but it, 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 it could be whack. That's the lake fear getting you. <laughs> this is why I'm covering this topic. I was researching this late at night with a fever and none of my thoughts on this topic are bound by rationality. Okay. So, the Baikal Zen, there is this little phenomenon that are small ice sculptures. They're spherical shapes of tiny ice or rocks that are on pedestals. And they're held. These pedestals are the narrowest, tiniest little support of ice. And thanks to the freezing, melting, and then refreezing of Baikal ice combined with ferocious Siberian winds, the sculptures are carved across the frozen surface of the lake. And the stone, which is like a, a stone the size of like a baseball, these are kind of at ankle height or the okay. wedges of ice, these large shapes protect that tiny little support structure while the wind and the sun beats on it. So it all melts away except this tiny little balancing act. So if you're walking across the surface of the lake, you could potentially trip on one of these really amazing natural sculptures. So I pulled up a picture for you. 
Okay, it's exactly what you described. It is a long stone on top of this little ice pedestal and and it's just oh my god it's so cool i didn't know anything like this existed and i imagine it would really hurt to stub your toe on it if you've ever seen uh like the valley of fire in nevada or desert where the winds sculpt these amazing rock formations in the desert this is kind of a tiny tiny version of that mm-hmm. and the thing that really interests me is that rock is in the middle of the lake how, how did it get did there? It get there? Thank you. <laughs> That's what I was wondering too. How? I mean, where do these? Are they? Do they get blown around by the wind, and then when the wind calms down, they freeze to the ice, and then they're more stable? I don't know. <laughs> In my imagining, there are tiny little hobgoblins that carry these rocks that are almost the size of them and just put them on the lake and then wait for the sculptures. Oh, that's better. I like that more. And, and they giggle <laughs> all spooky in the night. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about methane. Okay. Lake Baikal <laughs> is one of the only lakes that has hydrothermal vents at the bottom. Because it's so freaking deep. Mm-hmm. In this case, they release a large amount of methane from these vents. The warmth, the mineral deposits around the vents combine with the lake's highly oxygenated water and have allowed for what the Nerdfighter SciShow describes as, quote, Giant mats made of bacteria, as well as sponges, limpets, fish, and small shrimp-like creatures called amphipods living at the very bottom of the lake. Okay, so it's basically the same as it was 20 million years ago. Just these little creatures living off of methane vents? Uh Uh-huh. Oh my god. The methane from these vents gets trapped as beautiful bubbles within the thick five-foot-deep ice. And also, sometimes you can light the methane on fire. That part's cool. I uh, There's a picture here of what this looks like, and it is stacks of bubbles just going down and down and down into the ice. And this is the first one that I'm like, Mm-mm, I hate that. I don't like that. This is the first one? <laughs> I've been okay with the rest of it. It hasn't, it hasn't it's like, squidged me out. But this one, ugh, like all the bubbles, and the, it's very deep, and it's just bleh. I don't like it. And it's so clear around the bubbles. Yeah. It's like a cubist painting almost. You can see the time, the movement of the bubbles as they're getting trapped. It's like mm-hmm. snapshots. It looks like stacks of dinner plates. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, they're just, that's how the bubbles, like, they're, they look from the angle this is taken at, they're pretty flat. And it is a black background because it's just the water. And it's just stacks and stacks and stacks and stacks and stacks of white bubbles that look like these hundreds of stacks of dinner plates. Right. And we should emphasize that all of these stacks, within this one photo, there's, I would say, at least 100 stacks. And we have no way of knowing how far away this photo was taken. Was the person standing on the ice? Is the person in a drone over the ice? We have Mm -hmm. no idea. Lake Baikal is called the Galapagos of Russia. Oh, I'm not surprised because it's so isolated that it's got its own little unique ecosystem. Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. 
I've read a variety of statistics ranging from 1,500 all the way to 3,500, and that is the number of estimated species present in the lake. It is further estimated that up to 80% of these animals can be found nowhere else in the world. Wow. So everyone, please pardon my Russian, but we are going to talk about the golomankia, which is the Baikal oil fish or the Baikal shark. Ooh, okay. They come in small and large types and are found only within this lake. Despite the incredibly cold Siberian temperatures, they give birth to live young, killing the mother. They have a population of about 50 billion. With a B. With a B. Billion with a B. And they make up 70% of the fish in the lake. So there's there's potentially 1,500 to 3,500 species in the lake, but 70% of the fish are these Baikal sharks. Yes. Okay. And they are called Baikal sharks because of their type, but they are fish. They're a small fish. So small and large types is kind of like small and smaller. Okay. Okay. Um... I'm trying to give a thing for scale. The one the one that I saw a photo of would be like the size of a large man's hand. I mean, is that the large or small one? Who's to say? Okay. <laughs> when I tell you how much I tried to find out which was which. <laughs> but it's there, a mystery. You know, something there's some things we're not meant to know. Right. These fish are everywhere they have no scales which is another really fascinating detail for a cold water fish they have these pretty pearly pink little bodies they have wide fins and they have a vertical migration meaning they mostly hide out pretty deep in the water during the day and then they come up at night to eat tiny little micro critters or their own babies with their big intense mouths that open up to 1.5 times their own size Ooh, nightmare fuel. Great. It gets cooler. Okay, so cats, dogs, humans, not interested in eating oil fish. Why? Because their little fish bodies are 40% fat. When you put them in a pan and fry them up, everything but their spine completely melts away. (laughs) Oh my god. Though they aren't super easy to catch, this actually makes them perfect for burning oil. So if you catch one, they can be very useful. Tracy, sharing this topic with you is everything I dreamed of and more. You are having the (laughs) exact most wonderful reactions. I'm so happy. (laughs) Do you know who does eat the Baikal oil fish? These really amazing, super awesome seals. Okay. The Nerpa seal. They are so cute. This is one of the first bits of info that made me go bug-eyed with excitement over Lake Baikal. Anyone who's heard our Selkie episode knows that I have a deep love of seals. So, Tracy, this is a photo of the Nerpa seal. And I, okay, I found this original photo of a seal, and it was a seal that was in an aquarium, and I'm not really, mm-hmm. not really down for that. But this Nerpa seal in that photo looked haunted. 
it's seals have the full black eyes and it was looking at the viewer like i eat souls for breakfast lunch and dinner and nothing you say or do can affect me so i hunted and hunted and hunted to find a picture that has a similar seal out in the wild (laughs) looking at the viewer this one this picture there's at least four seals in it um there is one I'll get to that has a very direct stare at the camera. My personal favorite is the one in the bottom left corner that's just cozy. I know. It's just <laughs> it's just happy curled up. It's just got a happy little face. Um, the one looking at the camera has these huge all black eyes that are like weirdly human. Weirdly human. Like you hear you hear all black eyes and you think either creepy or inhuman. It looks like it is looking at me like Oh hey, uh, what what are you doing over here? <laughs> like that, <laughs> that's really? what it's looking like. That's how you imagine it because I imagine that seal being like, "I saw deep into your soul, and I judge you as being unworthy." I think it's both, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> hey, can I have some of that cocoa? You are an unworthy, festering excuse for a human being. <laughs> Okay, the one on the right has that attitude. The one on the left that's all cute and cozy is just like, no, I'm just happy to be here. (laughs) (laughs) So the Nerpa seal, with its population of about 100,000, is one of the only freshwater seals in the world. Other freshwater seals have closer saltwater ancestors in their lineage. Okay. And one of the reasons that this is particularly amazing is that Lake Baikal is about a thousand miles from the nearest ocean. So the seals don't have the same recent ancestry, meaning that they've been freshwater seals the longest and no one knows why. Oh, because this this lake is so ancient, so it makes sense that they would. Okay, okay. Ooh, interesting. There are two running theories that explain how these fluffy little chonk babies became the unique freshwater critters that they are. So there's a similar species in the Caspian Sea. Around 5 to 10 million years ago, the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea were combined into an inland ocean called the Paratethys or Paratethys Sea. Now, this giant inland ocean may have had connections all the way to Lake Baikal, allowing Nerpa Mm -hmm. ancestors to swim up the waterways. Or Arctic seals may have traveled south during glacial flooding events around 300,000 years ago. The Arctic origin is most popular, but both theories don't actually fit the timeline correctly because scientists believe the Nerpa seal probably became disconnected from its relatives around 4 million years ago. And that's accounting oh. for how they are evolved today. Oh. So we love a science mystery. Yeah, it's another fact we're just not meant to know. While they live primarily off of oil fish, Baikal seals are uniquely adapted to eat both vertebrate and invertebrate prey within the Siberian lake. Their teeth are actually giving scientists one of the most accurate timelines of pollution within the lake. Marianne Moore, a Wellesley professor of biological sciences, said of the seals, quote, The Baikal seal teeth are a chemical record of the lake. And she's referring to the way chemical records within the teeth behave like the rings of a tree within forests. Mm-hmm. With a 40 to 50 year lifespan, the seal teeth act almost like the rings of a tree, providing scientists with both current 
and historical chemical records of their environment. That's so cool. All right. There are famous rings that appear on the ice of Lake Baikal, most predominantly in March or April. Okay. Spanning three to four miles in diameter, they're difficult to see from the ground because they're so large, but they're easily recognizable from above. Um, if one were so inclined to look for this sort of thing, they look um a bit like like crop circles on the ice. Okay, okay, that makes sense. In the way that something circular in nature could look similar to another circle okay. in nature. <laughs> These shapes are created by rings of ice melt, making the outside appear like a dark circle around a massive island of white ice in the middle. Okay, so they're dark circles. Yes. And this is the perfect shape and melt style to show us the landing place of a flying saucer, of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. An earlier theory suggested that the methane coming up from the vents within the lake may have caused the shapes, but in recent years, scientists figured out the real cause. Ooh. A team made up of scientists from France, Russia, and Mongolia drilled into the ice. Using special sensors, they could test the salinity and temperature of the water up to 700 feet down. They found that the water around the ice rings moved in what NASA Earth Observatory called a lens-like shape. Okay. A common behavior in ocean water, but not in lakes. Alexei Koryev, a member of the team and hydrologist from the University of Toulouse, said, quote, Results of our field surveys show that before and during ice ring manifestation, there are warm eddies that circulate in a clockwise direction under the ice cover. In the eddy center, the ice does not melt, even though the water is warm, because the currents are weak. But on the eddy boundary, the currents are stronger and warmer water leads to rapid melting. Mm. I think it's so interesting that Lake Baikal seems to be a combination of ocean and lake in so many ways. Yeah, and, and no UFOs for any of us. No, no, not today. But that primarily concludes our mass science history drop. Now we're going to get into the spicy side. Ooh, okay. And by spicy, I mean superstitions. <laughs> it, yep, yep. <laughs> there are quite a few dramatic stories that surround Lake Baikal, some more believable than others, as you can imagine. So, Tracy, imagine, if you will, mm -hmm. a piece of local lore that claims our dear, dear friend, Jesus Christ, took a short walk to Lake Baikal during his days of desert wandering. To this I say of our lovely... <laughs> you know I wasn't expecting to make an appearance in this episode? <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. When I read that, all I can imagine is our lovely prophet from the Middle East struggling through Siberia. Yeah, it's cold. Oh, I really hope someone gave him warmer clothing and better shoes. I would hope so, too. He deserves that. 
But what seems to be the most famous story of extraterrestrials, underwater aliens, comes from 1982. Local fishermen alerted the police that they'd seen bright lights within the depth of the lake. So the army deployed seven divers who were specially trained for deep water. At 164 feet down, they encountered humanoid beings, about nine feet tall, with helmet-like devices on their heads but no oxygen tanks. Reacting to the divers, these beings sent out a burst of energy that pushed the soldiers back up to the surface. Unfortunately, because of their quick rise to the top, three of the divers died from the bends, and the other four sustained injuries. People love to speculate that there are aliens deep in the water studying people, that when the rings appear, it's evidence of their travel to and from the cosmos above. And to add to this conspiracy, supposedly there are declassified Soviet-era documents that describe unexplained UFOs and alien-related sightings. I could not find them. I'm about to admit something else. I'm so boring when it comes to conspiracy theories. I just find them, for the most part, frustrating because you just don't know what's true and what's not. And so much of it is, like, extreme. You know, in this, the idea that there's aliens living in the bottom of a lake, I just find more frustrating than exploring the microbiology of the creatures that live at the methane vents. So, I mean, everybody knows this, and everyone who didn't know before knows now, but deep water scares me, and I find stories like that chilling, even when I find them very unlikely. But it is not difficult for me to imagine in my fantasy brain, not so much an extraterrestrial, but an extraterrestrial, like a very terrestrial spooky thing mm -hmm. that is down there that we just haven't discovered that is scary as hell. Oh, yeah. That, that I believe. And I think speculating can be really exciting and using science to understand it. But just saying there were these mysterious people and they're aliens. Like, I don't know. It's just... Oh, yeah. Give me more evidence. I want evidence. Right. The thing that that sticks in my craw, you know, we have whales. They're massive in a way that is even difficult to understand just thinking about a whale mm -hmm. and what it takes to sustain them. And we have all these photographs from when photography was new of, you know, giant manta rays yeah. and these colossal versions of creatures that we know. But unfortunately, we wrecked the planet. And things just don't get that big anymore. Mm. They do. I mean, they found the giant squid. I mean, they, they do. I'm not ruling out things that are big. Yes, not to rule out things that are big. It's just there's less big things. If someone was going to find a giant thing, I think this would be the place. Exactly. But it is easier to imagine scary small things than scary big things in terms of what we could – like the evidence. Like you go down to those water vents, those little – Creepy crawlies down there are probably quite scary. They're just little. Oh, yeah. 
Little is scary, too. I think it's just scaling that really <laughs> messes me up. <laughs> you don't like extremes on either side. <laughs> no, no. Now we're going to talk about the dragon of Lake Baikal. Ooh, this I am all for. In the article, Chase Monsters and UFOs on Lake Baikal, Miranda Phoebus writes for New York Minute Mag, quote, One of the strangest sightings at the lake revolves around a lake monster who locals call Lusud Khan, or Usan Lobsan Khan, which translates to Water Dragon Master. The monster is described as a giant sturgeon with a prominent snout and armored plating along the back. People mm -hmm. have claimed to spot the monster's outline floating on the waters or even beneath the crystal clear surface, end quote. This tale lines up with one of the dragon kings of the four seas. Each dragon is associated with a cardinal direction, a season, a body of water, and a color within Chinese mythology. Ao Guang, the azure dragon corresponding to spring and the East China Sea. Mm -hmm. Ao Ren, the white dragon, the season of autumn and Qinghai Lake and Ao Qin, the red dragon, corresponding to summer and the South China Sea. And of course, the focus of this story, Ao Sung, the black dragon, which is associated with winter and Lake Baikal. Ooh, this is awesome. And as we're exploring this mythology, remember the, the borders that we have for these countries currently are not what have existed Throughout history. So because we really need to do an episode on Chinese dragons, or many episodes on Chinese <laughs> dragons, yeah, I'm going to be just brief in this overview. Um, these powerful beings are sometimes classified as thonic forces, and while many types of European dragons are almost exclusively associated with fire... This dragon type is linked with water, rainfall, storms, and the like. Wikipedia says that the presence of dragons in Chinese culture and worship goes back to at least the 5th millennium BC. You might be familiar with Lung. It's spelled Lung if you've ever read Dragonology, the book. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's the pinyin romanization of dragon in Chinese. So knowing what we know about Lake Baikal's location, modern borders aside, it's fairly easy to trace the way the story of a massive dragon or dragon-like beast grew and then altered with local traditions and customs, not to mention the myriad of rivers that linked with Baikal, providing a lovely roadmap for cultural diffusion. In recent history, there are many stories of the water dragon of Lake Baikal that resemble that of the Loch Ness Monster. Okay. Mm -hmm. A head or body appearing out of water in an area where the fish seem more scarce than usual. Or tales of creatures swimming underneath and rocking a boat. Uh, the disappearance or graphic death of people or animals. Um... One of the most dramatic of these stories is that apparently this dragon went full godfather bedroom scene on a horse that had fallen oh into God. the lake. 
I read that an expedition to the bottom of the lake even detected an unknown moving shape of about a hundred feet. So, I don't know what that was, but it was horrifying, even if it was just a rock, to be frank. Yeah, that's fair. The many, many myths of this beast combine in a really exciting way for me. So I mm-hmm. decided to write a little story from our ancient dragon friend. I'm so excited. <laughs> in reading the modern reports of dragon or monster sightings on Lake Baikal, I became really fascinated by the idea of a creature that fit the lake itself, a much, much larger and much, much older and much, much lo- more location-appropriate version of the Loch Ness Monster. Big, scary, spooky beast exists in water and no one can find it. Oh, I'm so excited. So content warning for big, scary and also drowning. Okay, let's listen to the story you wrote. I'm so excited. I am the sabered maw spread wide from the earth and gnashing at the stars. I am the sacred depth reaching deep, so deep with my water that even the thought of these fathoms presses like a crushing weight on your soul. I am within and without. Every lapping wave, tongue-flickering shore, every fish, every pebble, every gasp for air. I feel through the darkness and do not need any shred of light. It is no difference to me from one moment to the next, day, night in an instant. Within my embrace I hold entire ecosystems, generations of unseen beings living and dying between one movement and the next. I can lap into the perfect spiral of a wave or I can flow as slowly as any perception will allow. I creep ever farther, consuming the shore. What is time to me? The water roils and I am not cold. There is no cold, nor heat, nor hunger when one inhabits eons. I can stretch the entire lifespan of a skittering fly into the presence of a millennia. I can exhale the life of a man in but a moment. I have come so long from the past that the farthest future seems near. I can feel you walking along my ice, so thick it nearly promises permanence. Your steps are like a tickle of intuition along my spine, and I uncurl myself from the embrace of waiting. To stretch to the surface is to take form again. I become a massive slip of shimmering scales and the beat of membranous fins. My spines cut through the freezing, my horns pierce the pressure. Grasping and weaving and curling, I delight in the sensations of shape. 
I conjure currents to awaken the old habits of touch. I weave my edges until I am defined. From this moment, I trade my knowing for sight, my expanse for sound, the endless embrace of time for touch. I trade my abundant satisfaction for taste. And in the whole of me, I feel the ache of hunger bear down with the weight of every millennia I passed without need. There is a lightning of curiosity electrifying my coils, and I come to the surface reaching for the looks and touches and tastes of all the world outside. The ice is thin to the definition of my claws, so I am careful to graze it gently. I savor my scratch across the water's frozen surface to feel that I am solid. I feel the small fear of you creatures above or below, depending on how and who is looking. I listen, and the earth's turning is replaced with the littlest flickers of speech and song. I peer now through the crystalline window of ice. My eye blinks a vast mania of wanting. This sight I claimed feels sharp like betrayal, and I'd like to see some truth before I return to knowledge. The truth is, you are just as small as ever you were. I peer through cracked ice to see you tremble. I shatter through with the tip of one talon, and you are each so delicate as you fall through. Your screams are soft to my ears, like the crack of a tree's fall or the rolling of a stone. Had you drowned when I was abundant, you might have fallen into knowing me. You might have stretched your very last exhalation into one second more of our embrace. No cold, no need. I would unmake every edge of you with the wash of my tides until you became I. But I am not that way now, and you are not drowning. I am devouring you. There is only cold, and dark, and deep, and one fast moment that we both know fear. That was, first of all, spine tingling. At one point I got like a shiver. It had the strongest cosmic horror vibes. That un inability to know and to perceive. Cosmic horror is hard to write. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Writing something that is too big and vast to understand is so difficult because you can only write with things you understand. Yes. Oh, my God. Absolutely. It's like when you write a character into a sticky situation, you're like, oh, how are they going to get out of it? And you're like, ah, oh, crap, I need to figure that out, don't I? 
<laughs> I was just saying when I was playing D&D the other day that I need to stop playing characters that are smarter than me. Story of my life. That's why I play dumb fighters now. Just dumb himbo fighters. <laughs> smash. Only smash. Only smash. No nothing. I really like the idea that a lake has a presence. The lake itself has this knowing and this mm -hmm. understanding. And I like the idea that this massive monster is both the lake and the monster. I don't know. Big things just really put me over the edge. Yeah. And that, the story translated that really beautifully. When I tell you. I was blinking red-eyed at my computer at 3 a.m. And I was like, yeah, I was trying to explain it. I was like, yeah, because if you're this cosmic being and you existed with so long and without time and space, then you don't know hunger. But then what if you do? And mm -hmm. oh, my God, I the ghosts in the room were like, girl, take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> you have officially freaked out your own ghosts. And that's how you know you've made it. Yes. <laughs> Let's talk about preservation. Let's do it. Lake Baikal is protected as a UNESCO World Heritage Site, but it still faces issues when it comes to environmental preservation, of course. Mm -hmm. Smithsonian said in an article on Lake Baikal, quote, Development along the shores of the lake occurred last century with the building of several urban and resort communities. Ugliest, perhaps, among the defilements of Baikal's coastline is a paper mill that discharged pollutants into Baikal for years before being closed in 2008 on grounds of ecological protection. But the mill reopened in 2010, supposedly using cleaner and safer practices than previously. Meanwhile, local conservationists have other causes of concern. They have, for example, resisted plans to build a uranium plant in the nearby city of Angarsk. They raised a stink when a petroleum development company called Transneft nearly built an oil pipeline that would have passed within 3,000 feet of Lake Baikal, threatening its waters with leaks and spills. The planned pipeline route was eventually changed. Tourism development is a minor itch in comparison though it may produce eyesores like the hotels and vacation communities, end quote. Oh, that's tough. That quote really bums me out. And I yeah. get that Smithsonian might have to be neutral for whatever journalism reason they concoct, but it's like 2021, soon to be 2022. Can we stop using really soft language when it comes to destroying some of the most unique beautiful landmarks on our planet please yeah the pipeline and the uranium thing had my jaw nearly dropping like no big deal lake good petroleum pipeline poisoning lake and irreversible in our children's children's lifetime you know just a minor inconvenience it's just a yeah it's just a i can't, I can't even joke about it it's so frustrating <laughs> CBC News published an article by writer Chris Brown that takes a much more honest look at the effect of human tourism on the lake. On the one hand, the people living around the lake were once, quote, desperately poor, but now hovercraft tours and other forms of tourism have completely changed the economy in the area. Brown says, quote, in the year before the pandemic hit, 2019, 1.8 million people visited Lake Baikal with tourism-related activities pumping more than 116 million CDN into the region's economy. 
The number of foreign visitors, especially from China, has been ramping up steadily, growing by roughly 40% in 2019. I'm torn on this because I can see where tourism can help protect it by making it... If Sorry, if the money can go into protecting it, then that could be a good thing. But then you play the tough balance of tourism destroying it. But if... Well, you know what? Never mind. I take it back because this isn't something that needs to be maintained. It's a natural lake. I'm thinking of archaeological structures that we need to maintain and keep safe. And the money of tourism can help go to protecting that. This is just a lake. Leave it alone. Yeah, buckle up, buttercup. It's about to get a... All right. (laughs) It's about to happen. (laughs) Alcon Island, the lake's most popular tourist destination is a prime example of the destruction that's occurring. Quote, There are roughly 4,000 rooms for tourists on Alcon, but the island has no sewage system. That means waste needs to be trucked off the island, but that doesn't always happen. The result of this appeared in a test run by scientists at the Limnological Institute during September 2020. After taking 270 water samples from 32 shoreline locations, it was found that every single area with human settlement had unacceptably high levels of toxic algae. The indigenous people of Lake Baikal, members of the Buryat Nation, are on the forefront of protecting the lake and the surrounding land, while at the same time watching their culture being disrespected by tourists. The lake resides in the Buryat Republic, a federal subject of Russia, that's land has been sold off in parts by a myriad of Russian officials. Of course it has. Of course it has. Why Why am I shocked by that? I wish I wasn't. No, I wish I... I ugh, sorry, I'm getting worked up. This is so frustrating. An area known as Shaman Rock has 13 ribbon-wrapped prayer poles perched on the top of a hill to represent 13 deities of nature. Vitali Ryabistev, a bird and wildlife biologist who studies the lake, said of Shaman Rock, quote, It was so sacred that your average person wasn't even allowed to stand close to it, end quote. Now, it's become a prime Instagram location. This makes me want to throw up. <sighs> I didn't realize there was so much tourism around this place. I thought it was an isolated lake. It's really ramped up in the last couple years, kind of the 2018, 2019, and it kicked off huge during the pandemic. (sighs) It's so terrible. Okay, continue giving me bad, bad news. And that said, that's just what people are reporting. I'm sure there have been issues for an incredibly long time. I mean, we saw the examples of the uranium plant, the paper mill. Mm -hmm. I would like to continue this portion by introducing everyone to a really cool woman I learned about in my research. There is a 2016 article from DW, which is a German newspaper, that has really engaging firsthand information from a woman named Irina Tanganova, a Buryat shaman who travels to Lake Baikal every year. Now, DW, or Deutsche Welle, is a seemingly centrist German news source But the author of this piece was downright a 
offensive in his writing. Here's the thing, though, Mr. Author McMahon. You recorded a ton of direct quotes from Irina, and she was so generous in sharing that I got to learn from her whether you were a racist asshole or not. Wow, okay. So I'm going to take only what Irina said. Okay. In the piece, Irina, who is 70, said, quote, I found my faith later, much later, when I turned 60. My grandmother was a shaman too, but not my mother. She lived during Soviet times and was not allowed to be. That is why she died so young. Irina here is referring to the outlawing of her religious and cultural practices by the USSR, which has improved in recent years. For the last 13 years as of 2016, hopefully this is still continuing, but I'm not sure, um, about 100 shamans have gathered for their, quote, international shaman conference, as it was referred to in the article, at Lake Baikal. And this would absolutely not have been safe to do in Irina's youth. In their meeting place on the island of Ogon, she says, quote, We come here to gain energy, and because our 13 chathas, our gods and spirits, live here, they are strong and want to demonstrate their power. Do you want to see? Then she goes through the steps of an offering she's assembling on a card table, and she prepares for a ritual with the other visiting shamans. And she kind of describes it as she's doing it in the piece. She says, quote, I put balan, a cross between cookies, pralines, and gingerbread. Then comes the sula, a candle. This all brings good luck and prosperity. Then there is the vodka, which absolutely has to face toward the direction from which the spirits will come. Lastly, money and cigarettes, in case the spirits want a smoke. I love that. Mm Mm-hmm. Irina and the other shamans host a ritual that involves the native birch trees, uh, the cooking and preparing of a lamb, drumming, dancing, and when the ceremony is done, Irina says to our jerk writer, quote, I wish you health. That is the most important thing. You are an explorer. You must learn much in life. I want to meditate. I want to help others so that we can all be happier, okay? I love her. She seems amazing. She really goes above and beyond and this writer gets to be present for this ritual and and it it just describes so many details and, and interactions with specific places around Baikal. It's it's Irina is wonderful. <laughs> um and I haven't been able to find a grassroots organization to donate to to help protect Lake Baikal. So if anyone knows one, I hope you'll reach out. There are are other larger organizations that claim to donate to Lake Baikal, but I'm specifically looking for one run by locals, ideally indigenous peoples. And I mean, this is without a doubt a magical part of our planet. Things that happen here happen nowhere else in the world. And people being able to practice their religion safely on Baikal shores is an example of the best version of what humanity can be. And I started out my research thinking like, oh my gosh, I would just love to visit Lake Baikal one day. But in learning the effects of tourism, I really hesitate because I don't think that any visit is worth killing off our 
this portion of our planet. Agreed. I had the exact same thought as you were talking about tourism. I was like, well, I'm never going to visit it. I'll just continue to appreciate pictures that scientists take. Yeah, there, there is so much work and study being done, and there are so many indigenous peoples who are on the front lines of dealing with these issues. There are a lot of um, struggles with different Russian officials selling off land that maybe they didn't have the right to sell. Yeah. People trying to grow as the economy in the area grows, but it's not able to be sustained by either the land or the structure of the towns as they are currently. It's very complicated. There's a lot of dagger of nuance that goes into this one. But I just wanted to do this episode because there's so much here. There's the mythology, the dragons, the stories, the fun superstitions about the extraterrestrials and then the science is just the science the science is amazing um the mythology is amazing there's a whole religion around it all of this is so interesting and you really did it you really did the thing you absolutely nailed this research i was just so captivated the whole way through great job great job thanks you're easy to geek out with i am a big old nerd you are nothing if not that. <laughs> I watched you go like, do I agree? Do I go like, no? Do I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, listen, it's when you're with your people, nerd is a compliment. Always. I I used to get called a nerd as a kid and I'd come home crying to my mom and be like, you made fun of me. They called me a smart and a nerd and a geek. And my mom was like, yeah, and? <laughs> it means you're like it means you're smart and you're interested in things. What are you upset about? <laughs> oh, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you make really salient points. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I am who I am. <laughs> <laughs> so we did the thing. We nerded out. We're nerds. Lakes, man. <laughs> Lakes, man. Witches, man. Lakes, man. All of it. Uh, all of it, man. <laughs> all right. Um, do you want to tell me something good? No. Okay. Do you want me to go first? Tracy, tell me something good. Oh, Rowan, I would love to. So my something good is a it's a it's a show that uh, Casey showed me. So for those who have listened to this podcast for a while, you know Casey has been a guest host a couple of times. It's a show on YouTube called Hell of a Boss, H-E-L-L-U-V-A. And it's this animated short that is not for kids. It's animated, not for kids okay. at all. Um, and it's so good. So it's um, got the the guy who played Beetlejuice in the Beetlejuice uh, musical. Mm -hmm. He's in it. There's a, a bunch of really well-known either animators or voice actors in it um, from different – like there's the 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 girl who is one of the leads in Heather's the musical isn't oh. it? Yeah, it, and so it is the show about demons in hell <laughs> who run this assassination business. But it's uh, the first episode you watch, you're like, oh, this is just going to be like almost Rick and Morty style, where it's kind of gruesome, kind of crude, but funny. Rowan, these characters, they got so much depth. Like, the show just 
they dive into these characters and they're all so nuanced and have all these backstories. It's I have no joke watched the whole thing through three times. What's the animation style? To me, it kind of looks like a little bit like Powerpuff Girls meets Rick and Morty. Like it's a it's a <laughs> kind of a hand drawn animation style. It's got a little bit. It, it, all the characters have different ways of moving. So there's this kind of somewhat clown character that's very stretchy and has that like 30s animated feel. Oh, very okay, springy. yeah. But other characters are very grounded in their movements. There's a sequence in the sixth or seventh episode that is just beautiful. Like the character design, Rowan, the character design is so good. Okay, it's it's so good, you guys. Check out Hell of a Boss. There's right now there's the pilot and then um seven more episodes. So there's pilot and seven episodes. So eight episodes total. They're each about 15 minutes long. The whole thing takes like two hours to watch. Ooh. It's I will put it on our recommendations page. I really enjoy it. There's also um, what's actually weirdly more popular is a pilot for the show Has Been Hotel by the same people. Okay. It's only a 30-minute pilot, <laughs> but it that one's getting picked up, I think, by a network, whereas uh, Hell of a Boss is just on YouTube being supported by patrons. Get that network money. Creators, you deserve it. It's all so good. It's all in the same universe. It's all amazing. The people who did it clearly have such a deep passion for it because every detail on the show means something. So check out Hell of a Boss. I really love it. That is my something good. I've enjoyed it very much over the last couple weeks, but now it is your turn. I love your recommendations and consequently Casey's. (laughs) Most of my favorite shows are from Casey. (laughs) Gotta give her credit. (laughs) So now it's your turn, Rowan. Tell me something good. Okay. Kaylee Bray, I know you listen to our podcast, and I'm trusting you right now to stop listening to our podcast. Okay, everybody. Okay. Okay, now that she's gone, so, <laughs> um, <laughs> Tracy, you know this, um, on Pixel Circus, Kaylee and Sage and I often get referred to as the coven. Oh, yeah. Because we do witchy stuff. Um, so I, uh, bought a commission from an Etsy artist who I'm so excited about who's making a coven illustration of the three of us. Oh for, my god, that's going to be amazing. Yes, it's for a Christmas present. And this person is from Finland. And Ooh. their first language is definitely not English. And occasionally they keep saying, oh, you know, could you repeat that? My English isn't good. And I'm over here going... Babe, your English is more grammatically correct than mine. Um, Yes. And I just love their style so much. It's so – it's digital art that is the best blend of ink and watercolor style. And all the girl characters they draw just have these haunted eyes – um, and the little red cheeks and slightly oh, red noses. Amazing. And they just have such a wonderful understanding of color. And I couldn't figure out what I wanted to get Kaylee and Sage for the holidays. And it's just so satisfying to be collaborating with an artist I've never met before. And I I mean, I know you and I know so many creators and we get to have art for our podcast but getting to just reach out to a person around the world and saying hey can i hire you and then have the process be so fun i love that do you have their name can we can we plug them 
Yes, yes, of course we can. Um, uh, on Etsy, they are at Inca Tulia. It's I N K A T U U U L I A. And they have uh, stickers and prints, but they had their commissions open. And when I tell you, I hit order so fast. <laughs> oh, I love that. As always, we'll also have them on our recommendations page on our willingandfable.com website. Yeah. And I this holiday season, I have been endeavoring to find more creators on Etsy, which, you know, you always inspire me to do more. But also, I re- I think this is something that a lot of people don't know about or really think about amazon daddy bezos Mm -hmm. amazon handmade means you are actually ordering from artists and small businesses that are using amazon as their distributor and i think a lot of people forget that that's an option and a lot of those businesses amazon is a huge source of income for them it's very important And when you order from an Amazon handmade company, it's not the same as, oh, I'll just order this and return it and it's no big deal because this is a small business. This is a person's Mm -hmm. livelihood. But if you're looking for art or custom-made pieces, don't rule that out because I've noticed in knowing a lot of creators that people have moved over to Amazon because it is a cost-effective way to do that. Right. And – it's it's just going more to Etsy and Amazon Handmade has broadened my options for holiday gifts this year in a way that I wasn't quite ready for, and it's so exciting. That's awesome. I love that. So that's really good to know because um, I didn't even realize that. Yeah, I don't think people think about it because once people go to Amazon, they're like, "Oh, this is all corporate factory." But yeah. pay attention to who is actually the seller because it's a really good clue to how a the process of ordering will work, but b who's who's making money um and i just really quickly want to say um this happened a minute ago now but spotify wrapped mm-hmm. seeing listeners post that we're people's number one number podcast one. or we're in their top five just all day tracy and i were messaging each other it was just so exciting and emotional and I was not ready. I wasn't ready. <laughs> it didn't sink in for me until a few days later because my sister was texting me about the show and she's like, oh, you know, like, what are some statistics? Like, tell me about it. Tell me how it's going. And that's when it really sunk in that there are, there are multiple people who we're in their top five. Like they listen. I don't know. It's just it's so nebulous when we sit here and we're recording. It's just we're hanging out, we're talking to each other, we're talking to our listeners, but getting to interact directly with them mm-hmm. and seeing the impact we have on their lives, that really hit me. People we've never met having our podcast in their top five alongside podcasts I also listen to was such a big moment for me of feeling connected yes and 
just everyone who posted that and who maybe posted that for, uh, you know, new musicians that they're listening to. Anytime you do something like that, just please know in the bottom of your heart and soul that it re- we notice and it means a lot. And sometimes it's impossible to convey on social media how much of an emotional impact it has seeing that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, so along those lines, I have a little uh, something for you. I pulled a five-star review <gasps> to read to you. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Okay, let me scroll. I love a five-star. We haven't done this in a minute. I know. Do you want me to read it or do you want to read it on the fly? I, I want to read it on the fly. Okay, all right. Okay. Okay. This is from Alessande21, and it is from uh, late November. The title is My Reward for Doing What I Was Supposed to Be Doing Anyway. (laughs) Which is the whole mood. (laughs) Every morning after I put on my shoes and weather-appropriate wear, I pull up an episode of Willing and Fable and put in my earphones before leashing the dogs for our morning walk. Listening to Rowan and Tracy and their awesome guest hosts makes the time fly. I don't even care when the dogs decide to sniff one spot for five minutes because it means I get to listen to more of the episode before we get back home. Okay, truth time. I don't only listen to them while walking the dogs. Last month, they helped me get through some really boring data entry and road trips are just more fun with them along. And when I ran out of episodes, I started over back at the beginning because they are that good and have that much information packed into them that you can listen to them again and catch new things you might have missed before because your GPS kept interrupting them. Thank you, (laughs) Rowan and Tracy, for keeping me company while I do things I don't always want to do and some things I totally do. You guys can't see. Rowan is grinning. From ear to ear. So much, it looks almost painful. My cheeks hurt. It it is genuinely painful. (laughs) Smiling so much. This review just, I don't know, it just got me. It's so sweet. Thank you so, so much for leaving this. You have no idea that the five minutes it took you to write this has given me a a week of joy since, you know, reading it and, and being able to kind of hide it so I can show to Rowan. It, I relate to this so much of like a GPS interrupting your podcast, you know, when you're really excited about a podcast, not caring when your dog is sniffing. It's just, this is the nicest review. It is so sweet. It means truly the world to us. Like it really means so much. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for leaving this review. It, it, it is so nice. We're almost at the end of the year. Clearly Tracy and I are feeling really emotional about it. We are. I, uh, it's our second year. Year two. This is episode 68. 68. It is. There were 67 episodes previous to this. <laughs> That's how numbers work. It is. <laughs> it's the size of Belgium. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost a mile long. Our podcast is almost a mile deep. <laughs> you're right. You're right. <laughs> we contain that much depth and nuance. And also, we have tiny little micro critters way down at the bottom. And with that wonderful mental image, thank you all so much for joining us. And remember, stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Mm, Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon, okay?
Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch. Or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Each week on this, each week on this <laughs> podcast, <laughs> I'm doing great.